what I'm learning to do more and more of is removing myself a bit more from the product or the business and being able to see it a bit more objectively and taking it less personally. So like when someone says it's not good, it's their experience of my product and <laughs> not a comment on you know, my capabilities as an entrepreneur or my team or my company or something like that. But I think like the more I'm able to do this, the more I'm able to practice kind of like the opposite when it comes to seeing reality for what it is. So like instead of looking for confirmatory evidence, I kind of now do the opposite. I'm looking for evidence that would falsify my hypothesis, right? So like if my theory about my business or my product doesn't work, what would that look like? Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And we are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave this conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. Hey friends, hey, I am excited about today's guest. We have Jack He is an entrepreneur attorney. I met Jack last year in a lawyer entrepreneurial group, and he gave me a little crash course in AI. A few months later, ChatGPT hit the market and AI became a trending topic that everyone is talking about. There are a lot of opinions about AI, and this is certainly a cultural moment that will change our lives for good and bad. You know, technological advances always have pros and cons, but today we are talking about the good. And Jack shares his story about how he left his legal career to start a patent software company, Patent Pal. And as CEO of Patent Pal, Jack combines his expertise in patent law and machine learning to build language generation software that automates patent drafting. Prior to founding Patent Pal, Jack worked as a patent attorney at globally recognized law firms specializing in artificial intelligence and software patents. And through his practice, he managed the patent portfolios of both Fortune 500 companies and startups, developing a bird's eye perspective on the inventive activity happening in the heart of Silicon Valley. He holds a JD from Harvard Law School and a BS in computer science and AI from the University of British Columbia. I actually had no idea that there were degrees in AI until I started chatting with Jack. So there you go. (laughs) I learned so much in this conversation. Jack certainly has a spatial approach to thinking, which is very different from my verbal approach to thinking and learning. So it was really nice to learn more about his approach to his career, solving problems, and just life in general. And it was also good to get up to speed on some of the AI terms like NLP, natural language processing. I know some of you probably know this, but I did not. And you'll hear Jack refer to it a few times in our conversation. And that's simply the branch of AI that gives computers the ability to understand text and spoken words the way human beings can. And speaking of human beings, Jack also shares some of the human things he must navigate as an entrepreneur. And I just can't wait for y'all to hear this conversation. So let's get to it. All right. I am so excited to have Jack on the show. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we've been, I've wanted to talk to you for quite some time, but now it's just perfect timing because we are in an AI revolution <laughs> right now. So it'll be really interesting to just dig into your story because you have been doing this work for quite some time. But before we get into the work that you're doing today, I do just want to start from the beginning. I'd love to learn more about your childhood and how you grew up and your upbringing and your family. So can you share a bit about that? Yeah, I played a lot of computer games as a kid. <laughs> so this was even before I came to North America. So when we were in China, we had a computer pretty early on. And so as soon as we had a computer in the home, I started going on it. And at that time, I couldn't read any English at all <laughs> whatsoever. So I was playing these games and I have no idea what's going on. So I could only guess at what's actually happening in the game. But nevertheless, like I think growing up, I've always had a very intense curiosity. I've always wanted to dig into new things. So we moved to Vancouver, Canada in 1999. That's when I was like 10 years old. And so uh, the games kept evolving, gotten better and better. And I was using that as a way to learn English, actually. I learned a lot of English from just playing video games. And it was only a couple years later that when I was in, I guess, grade six, like when I was 12 or so, that I made a computer game to help teach other students <laughs> learn English. And oh. that was a fun journey. We eventually like took that to a regional science fair. I remember lugging around a giant <laughs> computers back then, you know, it was from the school's computer lab, right? So it was like a giant monitor and like the whole tower and everything. And taking that to UBC, the university in British Columbia. And, and we won like a silver medal. We got some money out of it. So that was cool. And it was a science fair, so we had to also like test our results and like see how that improved like students like learning performance before and after so, using the scientific method. But it was cool to like build a product very early on and see how users are like able to get benefit and learn English from using our computer games. So. Yeah. Wow. What an incredible story. I love that. So yeah, you can definitely see the connection from childhood to the work that you're doing today. So it started very <laughs> early on. You were building products. And I love how you learned English or how computers helped you learn English growing up. I think that's, or video games specifically, it sounds like. Right. So that's really, really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of a really high level words in video games. <laughs> yeah, I would not know much about that, but my husband <laughs> knows a lot about that. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> I am also just curious about your family growing up. You know, can you tell us a little bit about your parents? Did you have siblings? What mm. did your family dynamic look like? Yeah, so I guess I come from a business family. We did international trade. And I don't think growing up, I knew this was, I just kind of took it for granted. But it's not until later that I learned about other people's families <laughs> that I realized maybe it wasn't so common for us to be business oriented. So maybe that's partly due to like kind of the immigrant journey as well. But like we were, as a family, we talked about like business and work all the time, you know, at the dinner table, whenever something comes up. So it was kind of a very work centric, I guess, family culture. So I was exposed to business very early on. I helped my dad with his, with our family business. Another thing that's like unique is like the fact that we had access to computers very early on. So like I, I got a computer from as early as like grade one, I guess, and using that to kind of write programs and to learn English and to get familiar with new technology. So in that aspect, like our family has always been quite progressive. Very cool. Very cool. And is your family... 
Where are they based now? Uh, they're still up in Vancouver, BC. Very cool. Very. And where are you based? I'm here in Silicon Valley, so same time zone. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. And so you have this interesting background where you've really just grown up with computers, and you've made a decision to go to law school. I am curious about that. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to law school? Yeah, I guess like I've always been in multiple worlds. So like the kind of environment I grew up in, China, whether it's the education system or the society as in general, like it was very math centric. It's also very competitive, but along like this kind of one dimension. And I really enjoyed that. I loved math. I think my mind, like the way my memory is organized, is very spatial. So that lends naturally to kind of the sciences. But coming to Canada, that was like a very different. Educational environment where in high school I was in arts-focused high school, so I got to do like visual art, music, theater, like creative writing, and I was really, really terrible at writing. My unhealthy problem <laughs> is that whenever I'm like not good at something, I would like try extra hard to try to overcome like a weakness, right? So、mm. I remember being very shy as a kid early on, and drama class was probably like the most scariest experience I've ever had, being in front of people and acting and. Eventually, I did much better than that, and on that aspect, and you know, ran for student council and kind of like did all this crazy stuff that I would never do before. But writing was always something that I struggled with. So I, I know other friends who are extremely verbally minded, like they're the way they store memory, the way they think is very structured around language, and so they're able to be very eloquent and articulate and、uh, can write really, really well and absorb massive amounts of text data. And so that wasn't me, and that's something I wanted to kind of work on. So, like going to law school, that aspect really fascinated me. It was a very interesting intellectual challenge, and just the fact that it's very different, right? As someone who has been in many worlds and always wanting to explore, law was kind of like a new frontier for me. So, like nobody in my family is in the legal profession or has anything to do with law, right? Like、um, both my parents were more like on the science side. So I guess like it's kind of an ironic answer to your question of the reason why I went into law was because like I was interested and because it was so different from what I was used to like studying computer science in undergrad. Yeah, yeah, that is really interesting. It seems like you wanted to push yourself outside of your comfort zone, which I think is really incredible. Do you know where that comes from? Like that desire to push yourself outside your comfort zone and do something different. Yeah, I think it's just I've always had like a very intense curiosity, so I don't think I ever lost that. So I think my friends know me as like a good student on just about every subject. But part of it is just like if there's something I don't know, I kind of want to open the box. I'm very hands-on, and I want to kind of break down. Like I constantly ask the question why, and I want to break it down into smaller components until I get all the way down to kind of ground truth, right? And that's kind of how I approach just about everything. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And what did you learn in law school? You know, not black letter law specifically, <laughs> but when you went there and you tried this new thing within this new context, what is something? Can you share a lesson learned with the audience?、Mm. Yeah, I think law really opened my eyes to like a whole new world. So beyond just kind of like learning the law itself, having like this new perspective on kind of the code or the rules that govern society. 
right? And the way that's being interpreted. So I actually see a lot of similarities between law and computer science. So the way that case law is structured is not so dissimilar to the way that we train machine learning models now, like with a ton of examples, right? So there are similarities in the way that case law evolves, where it's based on new examples and based on edge cases and figuring out how we can disambiguate like those edge cases to develop rules, right? And a lot of those same kind of approaches lends really well to actually training a machine learning model to get it to work in a very intelligent way through a ton of data, through a ton, a long sequence of examples. So I mean, I can chat further about kind of like the synergies between law and coding. I think for me, like being at the intersection, and my specialization was kind of in intellectual property, which is at the kind of juncture between technology and law. So like there's a lot of actually synergies between like what is being done at the macro level with the legal system, with what's kind of done at a more micro level with like building machines. Wow, very cool. Yeah, I never even thought about that connection. So thank you for sharing that. (laughs) And I'd love to know just about that pivot from legal practice to startup founder. Can you tell us your entrepreneurial journey story? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think there was some point where I just essentially told myself, like, I'm just going to go for it. (laughs) But I think with any kind of pivot point, like sometimes like maybe the pivot itself, it's somewhat arbitrary. And it's really more like, what are the drivers underneath that are kind of getting to that inflection point? So for me, there's probably a large element of like kind of having the right expertise and being the right person at the right time. So the fact that I had a background in machine learning, the fact that I went to law school, I have done legal practice, and then even in as a patent attorney, right, then that was my practice area, I specialized in machine learning innovations and inventions, right? And so seeing all of this new developments in AI and kind of non-obviously realizing that all of these new innovations can be applied to the work that I was doing, you know, over and over again. That's like one of the drivers that made this decision quite clear. And other things like on a more personal level, like I've always had an entrepreneurial bent, like even before this, I've done business, I've, I've worked on multiple projects before starting Pat and Pal. So I think it was more a question of like, when do I want to make the jump as opposed to if. But like in terms of like the timing itself, I think there was like a certain time period where I started to think about this decision a little bit differently. If we think about making this decision in a forward time direction, right? Like if we think incrementally of say I'm an associate at law firm now, what's the next natural step? Maybe I'll get more experience and become a senior associate and then make partner and then, you know, kind of figure out what to do from there, right? Mm -hmm. But once we start thinking about like, where do I want to be with my career, with my life five years down the road or 10 years down the road? I think framing the question in that kind of reverse direction makes the timing decision a lot more clear, which is like this AI wave is coming. By the time it arrives, do I want to be a partner at a law firm and just kind of starting my business then, right? Does that make sense? Or do I want to make the jump now and put in all of this preparatory work and make all the mistakes so that by the time the wave is here or by the time like this becomes ready, my project is just ready to take off. Thinking about like that made it like, okay, I need to do this now. So that's what Jack did. He had good conversations with partners and mentors at his firm, and they encouraged him to think long and hard about his career because it is a big move. They would support whatever decision he made. 
and he took the leap of faith. Although getting the product off the ground and running so that it could actually provide value to customers was tough, they were fortunate enough to have some early success. Some of our early wins, like with fundraising, for example, I was invited to pitch at a conference at Harvard Business School where there was like I think 190 other startups. I was just like, okay, why not? <laughs> Let's just try it. And then we flew out, so like there was like some cash money prize associated with it too. So I was like, we can you know, have. I thought about it as like the likelihood of winning was very very low, right? Because there's so many companies, but the payoff is large enough. That the expected value is higher than the cost of my flight. <laughs> so with that kind of I don't know rationalization, I flew out there and tried it. For some reason, we actually won the competition, and that was like one of our early wins. We got some free money, no equity involved, and that funded some of the early development efforts. And so I don't know, like with building a company, like there's a lot of these kind of serendipitous moments that kind of come together. And hopefully, if we play our cards right, we can create our own luck over the long term. But there's also a lot of turbulence in the short term. Yeah, yeah, I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell the audience just about Patent Pal? We had a nice little demo session, and I just found、mm. it so fascinating. But yeah, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so Patent Pal uses generative AI to do legal writing, essentially, right? Specifically in the context of Patent applications, right? So to provide some context, so a typical patent application might take a trained expert about anywhere from thirty to forty hours to write. So it's, it's a lot of mechanical writing that I did over and over again. We've now put a dent into that, so we automate about twenty to thirty percent of a typical patent application document. So that's like based on customer feedback. That's like three to six hours of what otherwise is like mechanical writing that lawyers would do manually. That we now do with the click of a button. So I think for anybody who's done some professional work, that there's a point in that process where as we get better and better at doing it, and we do more of it, it comes across everybody's mind that what if we can automate some of this, right? Like we're getting so fluent with the work that we realize there is an underlying logic that makes the work deterministic. So that's kind of like what I experienced as well. On my like tenth, twentieth, however many patents, I kind of started to consolidate, you know, what my expertise is, and try to figure out if there's a way I can. So I started by automating about thirty minutes, like generating just the summary section of the patent. And so today, like we've kind of taken that much further to automate like five hours on a typical application. I love that. I love that. There's so many times in my legal practice where I thought about, I wonder if AI could do this.、Right. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it can. So, this is a very exciting time, and yeah, I am just curious about the now, right now. What is happening now that AI is such a huge part of the conversation? We're seeing a huge leap in、mm. the way that it is affecting the workplace in general. What is your life looking like <laughs> right now? Yeah, I mean, in the technology world, just things are changing so quickly. The models have gotten so much better, even beyond how the technology has evolved. Just like the people's perceptions of AI, right? The mainstream sentiment has also seen a fundamental shift just in the last year or two. Yeah. So I started Patent Pal in 2018, and this is when, like, the paper, you know, attention is all you need. The emergence of transformer technology, which is the underlying technology behind apps like ChatGPT, right, or Dali, or GPT-3, 
when that was just taking off. And it's with transformer technology that we are able to actually extract knowledge out of language, out of legal writing, at an accuracy that was unprecedented before, right? And like in my own deep dive into NLP, what I found was that language is very probabilistic at a low level, especially with a language like English, which has so many exceptions, right? Like how do we know at a very fine grain level, like if something is an adjective or a verb when there's ambiguity, how do we even figure that out, right? And mm-hmm. it's very intuitive and very probabilistic, but at high level, it's very symbolic, very reason-based, right? So as lawyer, we're very good at the high level, right? We're very good at explaining our reasons for how we analyze things, how we determine things in language. So that's kind of what we've done is taking transformer models and build an interface to be able to connect, bridge the gap between the high level world of reasoning and symbolic logic with the world of more probabilistic statistical natural language processing. So now what we are seeing with our customer base, so like even two or three years ago, we find that lawyers, even before seeing our product, I think there's an underlying assumption that this technology is future oriented. Uh, like that this is not ready yet. And so when they come to the call, they're thinking like, okay, this is just an experimental thing. We're going to see a demo and we'll check it out, right? Now that's completely changed. So with apps like ChatGPT, like everybody's kind of had a good experience seeing kind of like what this technology can do. So when they come to a call with us, they're thinking this technology is here today. And so, like, how can we stay ahead on the curve and how can we use that in our own practice? I love that. I love that. And so it sounds like before this wave, it was probably more challenging to secure clients or get people to really understand your vision and what you're trying to do. And so I'm just curious about some of the pain points in your entrepreneurial journey thus far, a setback, a story. Can you share something with us that has been challenging in this journey thus far? Yeah, I think with anyone who's doing something entrepreneurial, if you're working on something new and innovative and kind of far out in the left field, right? (laughs) We all kind of go into it and realizing like how easy it is to be kind of very severely misunderstood. So like for my experience, like there's an aspect of like even among the profession, a lot of people came into those calls or and you can find this online, like people have written reviews about our product without ever actually using our product. And they have very strong opinions about it, right? About this type of technology. And so there was definitely a ton of skepticism about the fact that AI could do legal work when I started out on this journey back in 2018, 2019. And it was very hard to convince people because it's all very theoretical, right? Like until they've seen it, right? How do you know that it is gonna work? And then also like on personal note, right? Like I don't think my, a lot of my friends and family really knew what I was doing. <laughs> I remember like, I think the closest data point for my parents self-understanding Pan Pal was something like Google Translate. That's their experience of AI, right? It's like, oh, we use that, you know, to translate Chinese and English, like to try to explain to them that I'm using like natural language processing or, you know, generative AI before generative AI was even a concept to automate patent drafting. <laughs> it was just like a completely different world that they're not exposed to. So I think it was a very lonely journey. And it was also frustrating because this was something that I could see very clearly And I had a very deep conviction that this was the right product to build. This was going to happen at some point. And I wanted to be the person to build it. But finding that almost like nobody else in the world thought that way, and kind of wondering to myself, like, am I crazy? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And do you have 
advice for people who might be in a similar position? They're trying to build something, whether it can be and can be in business, but it could also be in public interest, community service, but you're just doing something different that perhaps Mm -hmm. your community doesn't understand. Do you have advice for people in that position and how to push through? Yeah, I think it's hard. I don't think I can kind of understate how difficult that journey would be. I'll kind of pass along the advice I've been given, which is like, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Stay at the firm, be a lawyer, follow the traditional path, unless you have a very clear idea of what you want to do. And essentially, like when you give the advice of like, don't do something, one of two things happen, right? Like either they'll be like, okay, maybe I shouldn't do this. Or they'll be like, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyways, right? So if you're in the latter group, (laughs) then you're going to do it anyways. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a great way of framing it. It's like, if you really want to do something, you'll do it. Right. If it's just lukewarm, just stay, keep that security. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense. And what have been some of the biggest lessons learned on your entrepreneurial journey? We do have some entrepreneurial listeners, side hustlers, people with just that entrepreneurial spirit. So I'd love to get your lessons learned. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm still learning and trying to make fewer mistakes that hopefully I'd make fewer mistakes now. But one thing I've always struggled with was like as any founder, like we have, especially if it's our first project, it's something that we're intensely passionate about and we really want it to succeed. And so when that happens, there's almost like a blindness, like there's a tendency for us to look for evidence that will confirm my or hypothesis. Right? It's like, oh, if we see this customer, you know, said our product is good. It must be good. That's great. We're on the right track. You know? And the opposite is true too, right? If somebody will say like this product is bad or not good or say anything negative, there's a very bipolar kind of emotional turbulence of like, oh, this whole thing is going to fail, right? So, and I do this on a daily basis, right? Like today I feel great and tomorrow everything is going <laughs> to, it's going to wrap up by the end of the month or something. And that's kind of like the crazy journeys I think a lot of entrepreneurs experience. But like, I think what I'm learning to do more and more of is removing myself a bit more from the product or the business and being able to see it a bit more objectively and taking it less personally. So like when someone says it's not good, it's their experience of my product and <laughs> not a comment on you know, my capabilities entrepreneur or my team or my company or something like that. But I think like the more I'm able to do this, the more I'm able to practice kind of like the opposite when it comes to seeing reality for what it is. So like instead of looking for confirmatory evidence, I kind of now do the opposite. I'm looking for evidence that would falsify my hypothesis, right? So like if my theory about my business or my product doesn't work, what would that look like? Because usually it's a much faster route to falsify something than to prove something. Is that weird tension of like in the short term, we want to be very flexible, we want to be realists, and we want to be very practical about what it is we're doing. But in order to have that drive and passion and motivation, we also need to be like unreasonably confident in the North Star or the long term to to be able to push through all of that. Yeah, no, I know. It's interesting. I get that feedback from my family and from my husband that I'm just very positive about most things. Like everything that I look at in life, I'm like, it's confirmed. It's supposed to happen. This is like, I'm like, what did one of my friends say? He said that I'm optimistically delusional sometimes, but he's like, that's how you're able to start some of these projects. So listen, it's okay. Yeah. So I love that 
Can you share any final thoughts with the audience? Yeah, I think this is a really exciting time. And I think people are seeing that with all of these generative AI technology emerging right now, is that I think there's never been a time where it's easier than ever to reinvent yourself, to do something new, and to go for like that dream aspiration that you might have. I think the bar is also higher. So I don't want to understate the kind of challenge involved, right? Like, with the rise of technology in order to cut through the noise or to like kind of build a great product, right? Like it's a difficult endeavor still and it will take many years, but I think this is the time to do it. I think like one of my personal aspirations, right? Like I think like some of my aspirations for patent power or like for the product that we're building right now are fairly modest, which is like there is certain kinds of laborious intellectual labor that we would like to automate and kind of take that out of what all of these like highly trained people do over the course of decades or even hundreds of years. I think with technology like this, it's not a it's a necessary condition, but not sufficient in terms of like enabling people, which is that hopefully that by automating away some of the intellectual labor, that will enable lawyers to be lawyers or like people to kind of be the best versions of themselves. But I think it's really the start of the journey as well, right? It's kind of like the platform that allows you to begin to think about some of the most difficult problems that are facing our society today and allows you to think about it, to talk about it, and to hopefully like take a crack and to try to solve them. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember, you're not alone.